This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is Anand Venegala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is Lawrence Bergreen. He is an American historian and biographer based in New York City. Bergreen's first book was Look Now, Pay Later, The Rise of Network Broadcasting. He later wrote Louis Armstrong, An Extravagant Life, James Agee, A Biography, As Thousands Cheer, The Life of Irving Berlin, and Capone, The Man and the Era. He has even written biographies on Marco Polo, Ferdinand Magellan, and Christopher Columbus. His most recent book is Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius, published by Simon & Schuster in November 2016. It focuses not just on the towering figure of Giacomo Casanova, but also a story of 18th century Europe that encompasses everyone from servants to kings and courtiers. I want to thank Mr. Bergreen for joining us to discuss Casanova, the greatest lover of them all. <laughs> thank you. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you on, sir. So, what what drew you to Casanova, the figure himself, and um, I had uh, it's it's partly for uh, it's a subject that had interested me for a long time. You know, the 18th century was really a remarkable era of uh, enlightenment and uh, um, tremendous uh, intellectual and emotional uh, growth and testing and conflict and revolution. So it was a fascinating period, and there was something about Casanova himself which is over the top and outrageous. And in, in North America, um, he's really considered mostly the punchline of a joke. He's taken much more seriously as a major figure of the Enlightenment in the uh, in Europe. Um, and I think what actually triggered my wanting to do the book was that the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. Um, finally uh, came across or got a donation of his entire memoirs. That's his, what he's mostly known for. And uh, during the last 12 or 15 years of his life, he retreated from his wanderings to a, a library where he was a, a nobleman's librarian and wrote this incredible true story of his life and times. And it's, it unspools like a real-life novel with, as you mentioned, a huge cast of characters of royalty and servants and tricksters and actors and spies and has duels and seductions and you name it. And in addition, uh, Casanova was more than just a, uh, a kind of comic buffoonish figure. He, always, he was also a genius. Some people considered him a literary genius. He certainly has that status in Paris. He's considered one of the most important writers of the 18th century. And he was a mathematical genius. His claim to fame in his own lifetime um, was not as a uh, world-class lover, because he was a libertine among many other libertines, um, but as a gambler. And uh, his facility with numbers uh, not only gave him a way of earning a living uh, throughout his life, um, but uh, gave him a place in society when he, he was from Venice, of course, but uh, when he escaped to uh, Paris as a young man, he made his name there rather quickly by um, helping the French um, install a lottery um, which was uh, the first time that it had a, a really efficient lottery um, that supported the 
um, military academy. They are called Militaire. Um, and that was due to Casanova. Um, he understood the laws of probability, which were then um, coming into fashion, or people were beginning to understand them at that point, and applied them. Um, the French crown was had taxed the population out, and there seemed to be very little way to raise any additional income to support the sinking uh, proposition. You know, we were coming up to the years before the French Revolution. Um, but Casanova's lottery did the trick. In fact, it worked so well that a successor to it continues to this very day. Uh, the lottery in in France. So he had this very um, up and down, colorful career. Um, many failures, a great deal of squandered literary aspiration. Um, also, his family was of great interest. Anything Venetian interests me, and I think a lot of people. And he was in some ways a quintessential Venetian. Uh, his mother was a famous actress and courtesan named Zanetta Ferrucci. That was her stage name, and she was well-known. I came across reviews of her performances in London and other cities and newspapers. Uh, she was rumored to be the mistress of King George. She uh, let let the story go or encouraged the story that uh, she had borne him a child. I'm not sure that's true, but it, it, if it had been true, it would have been enhanced her status. His father, who died when Casanova was young, on the other hand, was a failed actor, um, who, who never really made it, and he, he was actually raised by his illiterate uh, grandmother, which is, you know, because given his later accomplishments and intellect is all the more remarkable. Um, so you, you have this, you know, one-of-a-kind figure, um, but who represents a very idiosyncratic culture, which is basically gone now, you know, being Venice. And an earlier book I had written was about uh, Marco Polo, uh, I think you had mentioned that in his travels. Of course, Marco Polo was from Venice, and I would say he's the other famous Venetian, at least for us non-Venetians. Uh, people in Venice are much more aware of uh, others who are more tightly bound to Venetian culture. Curiously, both Marco Polo and Casanova had to leave Venice in order to become famous or prominent or something like that. Which brings me to a point. I mean, there is James Joyce who had to leave Ireland to become the famous right. Irish writer that right. he was. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think there are certain uh, similarities to that. Um, he, Casanova, was imprisoned by his culture in, in, a, in a way that uh, Joyce was, uh, I don't know, imprisoned, but, you know, repressed by his culture. And he had to be able to, although he was obsessed by it, they were both obsessed by their, you know, their... Uh, 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 native cultures, um, they had to get away from it in order to be able to write about it, um, partly because they came from places that were very, very insular. And um, yeah, I, I sometimes thought about Joyce in connection with Casanova, their facility with language, um, the fact that they were both polymaths, and, and the fact that they were both misfits in a way. I haven't read Casanova's memoirs, but I've been reading this book called Swoon by Betsy Priolo, which he outlines yeah. Casanova as a genuinely good lover for the most part. He had his flaws, <laughs> but he was a man of character in general. That's the book's portrait. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I think it depends. What you, he was, you know, by our standards, he was a uh, pretty slippery fellow. Um, he had a noble, not, not, not noble in the sense of royal, but he had a uh, idealistic or redeeming side. 
Um, and he certainly struggled throughout his long life. He lived to be almost 75. Um, and uh, left, you know, the riches in, forms, in the form of this manuscript. But he, was, he could also, in his own description, be very underhanded. Um, and a lot of his escapades were show him in a very negative life, light, uh, especially in this day and age, in the era of Me Too, uh, Casanova comes off very poorly. Um, maybe in another era he might have seemed, uh, you know, to be a dashing uh, a figure. Uh, now in some ways he seems to be uh, highly exploitative and um, entitled and some other things that are not so pleasant. But anyway, he's he's a complicated fellow and uh, in some ways more sinned against than sinning. And, you know, he left this record of his experiences where you can, um, uh, you know, ju- one as, as one reads through, one can judge, uh, you know, f- for oneself. Um, the other question is, how do we know it's true? And as I was researching the book, I did as much as I could to check out stories about famous people and places and events where he um, described and placed himself and wrote about. And, and they all matched. In other words, if he wrote about an encounter with other people or a romance and there were letters uh, written from the woman or something. They, they matched Casanova's letters. So, you know, it was a fairly unsparing view of himself. Of course, you know, in terms of what's going on in his head, only he knew for sure he's the expert on that. So we have to take his count or his version of it. Um, but he was not, you know, some of his exploits sound so far-fetched, you would just think he has a great imagination. But really, his, the secret of his Literary success was not his imagination so much as his uh, kind of all-encompassing, well, he took notes and diaries, but his all-encompassing memory and his ability to evoke uh, what is now a vanished landscape. I found this mesmerizing as I got into it. You know, his memoirs occupy 12 or 13 volumes, and uh, they're available now in French and, of course, in English and in other languages um, if anybody can read them in French, I would recommend that because there's uh, certain nuances and uh, sort of felicitous phrasing uh, that comes through in the French that, um, you know, you lose in translation. And his French was actually fairly straightforward, not to embellish because it was his second language. His first language, of course, was the Venetian dialect. But nobody was writing in the Venetian dialect at that point for any literary purposes. They were writing in French, or if they were the clergy, um, in Latin, and uh, that was about it. So that's why almost everything he wrote uh, was in French. Thank you for the excellent arguments that you portrayed of Casanova. And the notes I have made on Casanova was that, in general, he was a fool for love. He had about 120 lovers, and that he was neither tender nor gallant but passionate. And for the most part, he did care about those he slept with. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think everything you're saying there is true, um, and I think the sense of his feeling uh, comes through, especially when he got older. He writes about some of his adolescent escapades, and they are heartless, and they are cruel. Um, they're, uh, they're not abominable, but, you know, they're, they're heartless, and, you know, they don't, you know, he doesn't really win much sympathy. But and later on, when you see his attraction to women that, um, you know, is sort of unbearable, it's 
irresistible. You feel the sincerity of his yearning and his love. And, um, you know, of course, you wonder why he didn't get married, because some of these women uh, wanted to get married. Actually, many of them did, um, and saw him as potentially, you know, very exciting and uh, successful mate. But um, he didn't for two reasons. The one was an obvious, explicit one. He was a libertine, which was a kind Mm -hmm. of a a thing to be in the 18th century. A libertine believed in freedom above all, and that all, that meant freedom from marriage. Or if a libertine were to be married, he or she would have many affairs and would not be bound by uh, conventional morality. Um, we here in North America think of the Enlightenment in the 18th century as the age of reason. Um, and it's, it's certainly it is. You know, it's Locke and it's Hobbes and it's um, many other people, um, but um, in the in Europe, it was also an age of emotional liberation, and it's called La Lumière, the Enlightenment in French. So it was an emotional as well as intellectual awakening, and Casanova really participated in that. Oh, also, I should mention um, when you say you come from Venice to make a uh, very, very crude comparison. That's a little bit like saying now, well, you come from the Strip in Las Vegas. Um, The reason being that at that point, um, uh, uh, Venice was had a reputation as being the um, flesh pot of Europe. And tourists came from all over, especially from England, um, to sample the wares of the Venetian prostitutes and courtesans who were famous and celebrated, and that was the milieu in which um, Casanova came of age. So for him, that was second nature, and uh, he was very familiar with it. Um, but uh, you know, it was different in other parts of Europe. The the, the other thing was that uh, with being a libertine was that Casanova. You know, to play armchair psychologist for a second, um, and I had actually talked about this at a seminar of psychologists and psychotherapists at Mount Sinai uh, Hospital in New York. Um, uh, was psychologically wounded early on when his mother, the actress Anetta Ferrucci, who I mentioned earlier, abandoned him. Um, he was only seven or eight years old, and she went off on a tour, extended tour of Europe, um, and uh, they didn't get together again for years, and even when they did, their reunion was rather cool. Uh, he, he felt that, uh, you know, she had abandoned him. He felt he was closer to his grandmother, and, you know, one could speculate that throughout his life, he was looking for the love, the assurance, the warmth, uh, the security um, that his mother had deprived him of by abandoning him at such an early age. And he was always trying to compensate for it in the arms of this woman or that woman, um, you know, but never, it, it never really worked all the way. Um, even when he felt himself to be deeply in love with him. You know, it's funny, you know, you think about being in love, and I think of that uh, famous Magritte painting of two lovers who are embracing and kissing, and they, they both have, it looks like, um, towels or sheets or blankets wrapped around their faces, you know, and they're blind. It's a rather haunting image because, you know, you're wondering, you know, it's, i.e., love is blind. And, you know, what does one see in one's love object? What does one see in a lover? And uh, that's that's what Casanova's search in life was about, and and that's what he records so eloquently in his memoirs, which, by the way, read like a novel. 
Um, it, it does not read like, got up, it's March 23rd, had breakfast, you know, went for a walk, then had a meeting. It's not like that at all. It's a narrative, you know, with very vivid characters and a lot of suspense and a lot of literary flares. So, you know, you're drawn into a world which is, uh, you know, this incredible world. I want to tra- backtrack to bring up Casanova and Me Too. You said that he would come off very poorly in Me Too, but I think in some ways, in some ways he might, but in other ways he might not because, as I mentioned, he did care for the most part about women's pleasure, I think at yes. least three-fourths yes. of it. Yes, yes. That's a very important point. He, it, in those days, you know, it's hard to know for sure, but when you read, Casanova wasn't the only one writing about his private life and personal passions, but he was almost unique among memoirists of that era um, to, as a man, to take interest in the woman's pleasure and female pleasure. And in French, which was the language he was writing on, in the female orgasm was called la jouissance, the rejoicing. And uh, so he was very aware of the female obtaining or having as much pleasure, um, at, or more or less, as a male, and it wasn't just about gratifying himself, uh, you know, with a with a passing woman. Um, that plus the deep emotional connection he sometimes formed. Um, people say, "Oh, he was the most popular lover of all time." Um, well, you know, he said he had 120 or so, maybe 130 uh, lovers, and uh, he seems to write about almost every single one in the book. Um, when you compare that to the escapades of some, you know, athletes who've written memoirs today, it seems like, well, that was a long weekend for them. You know, their 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 uh, level of promiscuity is is so much higher. So, you know, it's all relative. But it was clearly, you know, the focus of Casanova's life. That plus gambling, and then this sort of uh, buried instinct um, to be to write, you know, to be a writer, which he only really got around to in his later years. Great points. But I want to mention that you you said that Casanova felt very close to his grandmother compared to his mother. In the notes yeah. I made on Casanova, maybe the friendship he had with his grandmother and the other women in his life predisposed him to care about women more so than many other men might be, especially if many men don't have a lot of maternal or female influence in their lives. Yes. He was very dependent on female relationships for emotional sustenance and just just for his living, for his his fortunes. He did have some male friends, um, and he he wrote about them, but I would say they really were, uh, he was more of a, not surprisingly, uh, more of a woman's man than a man's man, if you will. Uh, Among his friends, his male friends, though, there were some interesting people. Um, He had a patron who was one of the, Venetian 400 who looked after him throughout his life. And in his later years, he became the, what they used to call boon companion, which was kind of gambling and um, womanizing companion of Lorenzo Dupont, who we know as the librettist for Mozart operas, especially Don Giovanni, um, which he based partly on Casanova's own experiences. You know, that's about Don Juan, the archetypal Don Juan figure, and it was a genre of an opera. So, um, uh, De Ponte was also from Venice, and both of them were in exile in their later years in Prague, which was an important center of European culture, sort of like Paris um, at that time. And uh, 
So and 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 they were good friends. Um, the, uh, Ponte later on uh, came to the United States and um, formed, started the Columbia University Music Department. Uh, believe it or not, he had a very very long and varied career that took him all over the place. Casanova, on the other hand, wanted no part of uh, the USA because it was a democracy and um, because it seemed to him to be a populist place. He was a monarchist through and through. And he, uh, despite his, or maybe because of his libertinism, his liberated lifestyle, um, was always on the side of the monarchy. So he did not think that the United States would be a, you know, sympathetic or friendly environment for him. So he he avoided it. Um, Even England, which was somewhat more democratic than the European countries he was used to, um, it it rubbed him the wrong way. He lived there for a few years quite unhappily, um, did not have the ability to connect with people um, that he did in uh, France and other countries or and he, you know, it was not a happy experience. So his his temperament was was very, if you will, Latin or very Gallic, and uh, you know he he would never never had a uh, American um, uh, adventure the way De Ponte did. Also, he was opposed to the American Revolution. Um, he was opposed to the French Revolution. So you have to say, looking back with the judgment of history, you know he was on the wrong side of. 18th century history, being a monarchist. But why would his libertinism lead him to support the monarchy? Might not his support might not his support of libertinism be congenial to supporting revolutions that are dedicated, for the most part, to liberating the individual, which the American and French revolutions were, for the most part, seeming to do? Uh, good point. However, the monarchy, which was his frame of reference um, in uh, various countries, especially in Paris, were famously decadent. Uh, King Louis XIV, 15th, 16th, had a huge retinue of um, courtesans and uh, mistresses. Um, they had mistresses who managed their other mistresses. And this was the world. They, they ran harems, virtual harems. This was the, or seraglios, this was the world that Casanova knew and that he felt comfortable in. Um, and it was very structured, uh, and uh, it was a, a life of, of leisure. At least it was supposed to be. It really wasn't very leisurely for, for Casanova, who was living by his wits. Um, so the uh, democracy struck him as being rather déclassé, and uh, it was a brave new world that he, he wanted no part of, and he, um, you know, he read a lot. He was certainly aware of some of the arguments in his favor, but he, he just cast his lot with the old guard because that's what he knew. Yeah, and the American experiments seemed to be very Puritan from the outset. The earliest right. settlers were like Puritans, yeah. and then the founders sometimes were worried that the Americans would be all decadent and would be unfit to right. be free. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, they were... <laughs> It really wasn't like that for, you know, in the 18th century, well, look, if you look at Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, they all were, to a certain extent, had libertine tendencies, especially uh, if some of them were visiting abroad. But uh, the American character was clearly different and uh, was, was, you know, oriented in a different direction, uh, whereas Europe, and, and after a while in the American mindset, um, you know, Europe came to some, 
symbolize um, a kind of a moral turpitude um, and decadence um, and uh, corruption of the of the flesh, um, whereas America was supposed to be freer and pure and and not have these European vices. Of course, all these are all you know stereotypes and myths, but you know this was the kinds of ideas that were in the air. But uh, anyway, Casanova remained in in Europe and retired in the last 14 years of his life to a um, library that was in ducks outside of Prague, a huge library that was owned by a nobleman, and having a uh, sinecure, a very simple job there, spent most of his time writing these massive memoirs. So when I, when I began this book, one of the first things I did was um, go to the library and look at the actual memoir, which is written in uh, giant uh, foolscap size paper in his very, very clear handwriting. Um, and uh, it's, it's, there's something about holding, you know, the actual writing in your hand and uh, seeing it, not, not just a facsimile, not just an image um, online, but it makes it seem uh, more real or uh, realer than real. Of course, it's now, when, uh, when I was writing this book, it wasn't available online. But now it is. So if uh, you, there's a website called uh, Gallica.com, that's G-A-L-L-I-C-O-M.com, and this is connected to the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. It's the French National Library. So you can see facsimiles of this enormous manuscript, or at least giant chunks of it, page by page in his handwriting, as well as, of course, getting published versions of it and the original French or in, in English. Thank you for the notes. And speaking of like national stereotypes and ideas, when you said Casanova was more Gallic slash Latinate in his characterization, yeah, yeah, what does that yeah. usually mean, especially passionate, compared to Anglo? Passionate, uh, passionate, passionate, um, much more expressive. Casanova was highly expressive. And... Um, it was, uh, you know, feelings with Casanova really came first. Um, so, and it meant that he gave them a, a kind of a paramount importance and thought about them and analyzed them and, uh, you know, sort of bathed them, if you will, um, all the time. And, uh, you know, you, you would say he's in some ways the archetypal Latin lover. Now, the, the actual archetype is, is of course, Don Juan. Uh, but uh, Casanova saw himself uh, very much as that that was the point of a person of a man's life was to have conquests and to um, uh, you know draw close to women. But he also knew it was a charged thing when he talked about the act of making love. His word for it was very telling. It was combat, and he would say, "Well, the combat began." So obviously, you get a sense of uh, struggle and competition and defeat and who would prevail. It all goes back to Roman times, in a sense. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Um, by the way, he did have his limits, speaking of Roman times. Uh, when he was young, he trained as a priest um, and then left the priesthood because he became too attracted to the women he was preaching to in his congregation. Um, but he did, as a young man, go to Rome, um, met the Pope briefly, um, and uh, participated in some Roman orgies. Rome was famous, like Venice, for 
uh, decadence and depravity. Um, and this is part of the reason why there was a Protestant revolution. Um, and even Casanova, for him, it was too much. Um, he described some of these Roman orgies, and it was more, he was, he had some pretty wild escapades, which I can tell you about if you want, but even even this, you know, Roman style was was beyond his, uh, you know, over over the top for him, so he, he didn't participate. I would like to know about some of the escapades that Casanova had. Would you care to share for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, keep in mind that we're talking about Venice, which was considered the most depraved city in Europe. This was near the end of the Venetian Empire, um, so it was at the peak of its decadence. Um, and the main reason that tourists came to Venice in those days was uh, not to admire the artwork um, or something like that, but for what we would now call sex tourism. And I had mentioned the courtesans earlier um, and the prostitutes. Many of them were nuns. And you'd say, how is this possible? Um, it's because many families in Venice and in Italy and even from nearby France um, who didn't want their daughters to get married and dilute their bloodline, uh, you know, their, their genealogy. They wanted to confine them to a monastery. So they weren't there for a religious vocation, as we normally think of it, as it, as it is today. Um, but they were there uh, to keep them from getting married, you know, pregnant and married at the age of 14, 15, 16, you know, 19. They were all quite young. Um, but they were also considered quite desirable. So the... Um, Religious orders that ran these monasteries in Venice um, essentially operated them as brothels. Uh, tourists would come; they would bring, uh, they would liberally bribe everybody. They would arrive with gifts, and they would um, party with the uh, young nuns or novitiates in training there. You'd say, "How is it possible?" This is something you know you read in a novel. However, it's well documented not only in Casanova's writings but in paintings and in the diaries of many other visitors uh, to Venice, and in the history of the period. Um, so you don't have to just take Casanova's word for it. He was, he was one more uh, person drinking at the fountain, if you will. Um, he fell in love with a couple of uh, young nuns who were in confinement there, managed to uh, free them briefly, and then uh, they would go back. But he was, he was really kind of desperately, madly in love with them, the fact that they were captive of, of this monastery uh, made it all the more poignant for the, him. Um, he also described, uh, because he was, you know, rather uh, curious and observant and, and, and nosy or even prurient, um, some of the relations among nuns in the monastery, you know, intimate relations among them, um, and wrote about that and speculated about that. So it turns out, and I was surprised about this, when I um, came across uh, some of this, there was a whole subgenre of I don't know, for want of a better word, nun pornography um, that was popular, very popular in that era. Um, the uh, most, the best known book was La Religieuse, the Nun, uh, was which was written by one of the leading editors of the great encyclopedia of the 18th century um, in his spare time. Uh, but there were many other examples of this. So uh, what we would call pornography or erotica uh, flourished um, during this era, and Casanova was, you know, sort of lived it and was 
aware of it as well. So, you know, these uh, monasteries and convents in in, in Venice were um, uh, very special. There was there was one where things got really over the top. Um, there was the priest who was in charge of it uh, got various nuns there pregnant, and, uh, and they all ganged up and murdered him um, at one point, uh, which was a, as you can imagine, an enormous scandal. Uh, so, you know, as I said, this was the the last most decadent years of Venice. Um, which eventually, you know, was conquered by Napoleon. Curiously enough, uh, Casanova had a role in Napoleon's military education. I can tell you why, if you if you'd like. Um, and uh, it's one of the you know crazy or roundabout stories that I never would have guessed when I began the book. But I had mentioned earlier the École Militaire, the military academy that his lottery had financed, uh, one of the first students to attend it was uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, who was then 16 years old. Um, he graduated a few years later, and uh, became, and when he was still very young, uh, conquered Venice on behalf of France. Uh, so... I don't think that would have happened unless Casanova had had financed the École Militaire. So it's a rather extraordinary thing. Incidentally, Napoleon had great contempt for the Venetians, refused to enter the city um, even after he'd conquered it, sent Josephine there in his stead and wanted nothing to do with it. Um, So, you know, Venice then became part of, I don't know what it was, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, but that was the end of a thousand years of the uh, Venetian Empire. So it was a long run. A long run indeed. And which brings me to this point that a lot of the great lovers of history, Lord Byron, Casanova, and various others, were not only just lovers, but they were like polymaths of some sort or another. They Uh, were widely educated, and they cared about people and more. Uh, Yeah. I think that certainly is true of Casanova, because uh, he was very well-read, uh, knew a number of languages. I had mentioned his uh, extraordinary ability in math. He also uh, translated the Aeneid um, into Italian from Greek, uh, wrote a number of uh, broadsides, uh, wrote a lot of other poetry, some of it anonymous, and you know, published a lot of material, but really never made a reputation for it. Um, in his lifetime, curiously enough, the his, the idea when he died, he he died in sort of semi obscurity. Uh, he was buried in the um, uh, graveyard near this uh, castle that he'd been a librarian in, um, and his reputation, as we know it today, is Casanova was entirely posthumous. Um, if somebody had written his obituary at the time of his death, they would have said he was a gambler and librarian, and, uh, you know, he was best known, we'll, we'll talk about it in a few minutes if you want, for his escape from the uh, Venetian prison, the Leds, um, and that was about all. So he, you know, he seemed like almost a marginal figure. However, in the years after his death, in the decades, parts of this memoir of his began to get published and circulate around Europe, first among noblemen, and then more widely circulated, and his reputation grew and grew as a as a sort of social chronicler uh, and uh, 
romantic or erotic uh, writer and adventurer. Um, and uh, so he, uh, the fame that he had lusted for during his lifetime, he only really got afterward. But, but to give you an idea of how obscure he was in his lifetime, he, he, was always, he was a social climber, as you may have imagined. And he had wanted to meet the most famous writer of his lifetime, who was Voltaire, who was in Geneva living with his wife. And they, they met, and uh, he had read a lot of Voltaire's works and um, seemed to be considered. He considered himself, in his mind, to be the equal of Voltaire. And Voltaire was astonished by this nobody, this upstart, um, whom he'd never heard of, who was attempting to converse with him as if they were literary equals. And uh, he was really taken back by Casanova's sheer impudence, uh, because uh, in his eyes, which was the way the world was looking at Casanova then, he was uh, a relatively uh, obscure figure um, who had just talked his way into... um, Voltaire's presence. Uh, these days, of course, uh, you'd have to say that Casanova is at least as well known as Voltaire, the author of Candide. Um, but, uh, you know, it took a long time. So, which brings me to this point. When you said Casanova's reputation was initially obscure, but then he gained it over time, how did that yeah. reputation develop in the 20th century where we got a larger availability of his manuscripts and of what he wrote? Um, well, in, in this country, uh, you know, where you know censorship was the was the rule until the twenties or even the thirties, uh, you know, Casanova was only known in fragments and as being rather naughty and bawdy, and there were some very poor translations of his writings that were very partial that circulated. They were boulderized, um, and uh, they weren't they weren't very good. But he did acquire this kind of naughty, forbidden quality. Uh, Europeans got a you know more of a, a uh, straight uh, dose of what Casanova was like. However, finally, uh, beginning in the 1960s, um, larger, much larger portions of his diary were translated into English um, and also you know, were circulated in the original French around Europe. So his reputation began to spread. And uh, at, at some point, I'm not sure when, the, the French literary establishment embraced Casanova as one of their own, even though he was from Venice, but largely because he wrote in French um, and uh, wrote on themes that the French really identified with, because, as you know, French literature is filled with a kind of uninhibited um, sensuality that uh, is often absent in uh, Anglo-American literature. So Casanova fit right in in the... uh, uh, French, that's what I meant by Latin uh, mindset. So uh, it became better and better known. And then, as I said, quite by accident, I happened to see this uh, notice, uh, I don't remember, it's a newspaper online about the Bibliothèque Nationale acquiring his complete manuscript and making it available for the first time. This, this was about, well, now it's about four or five years ago. And so it was finally, finally, we had the complete unexpurgated Casanova, uh, in his own words, uh, you know, writing about his experiences. So for me, that seemed a really, really remarkable event. And, you know, he had finally acquired all of the stature that he had, you know, yearned for in his lifetime, and which nobody would have, you know, really uh, thought he would have ever attained. 
but um, I think his his memoirs speak for themselves because you know it's the the power of an individual voice, and yet he's not just writing about his own experience. He 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 brings in so many other uh, large scale public events. For example, to give you just one example, um, well, two. Uh, in his lifetime, I'd mentioned his experience with escaping from a prison. He was arrested for some escapade or other, it's not clear what, when he was a young man in his early 20s in Venice um, and jailed um, in what was called Ipiombi, the Lens, which was a prison above uh, the Venetian, uh, the main uh, Doge's palace, and it was on top. And the Leds is where, literally where you went to die. Um, it was so hot in summer and so cold in winter that you know prisoners were kept there and fed very poorly, uh, lice-ridden, it was horrible, um, and they died there. He, Casanova might have been uh, convicted of uh, possessing forbidden books. Um, it's not sure. He became interested in the Kabbalah as a young man. Had, uh, excuse me. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, a little bit of hay fever. He uh, collected some works of the Kabbalah, which had become Christianized. You know, originally this was a work of Jewish mysticism. And when agents of the uh, Venetian Inquisition, who were ubiquitous, discovered them in his apartment, uh, that immediately got him into trouble. He also may have slept with the wrong woman, which added to his difficulties. It's it's not clear. Anyway, he was thrown into Ipiombi, into the lens, uh, not charged, and it seemed like he would never get out. He was there uh, for almost a year, uh, getting some help occasionally from a guard who might have been working in cahoots with uh, this nobleman who had taken an interest in Casanova as a sort of a father figure. Uh, but there seemed to be little hope for his ever escaping or surviving. However, Casanova himself was very resourceful, and he spent a year slowly, it was like that movie Escape from Alcatraz, slowly digging his way out of this cell and then hiding the tools during the day and then digging at night. And eventually he was able to contact a defrocked priest, um, Father Balbi, who was in the next cell, Father Balbi had fathered children with various women, and uh, that's why he was there. He was uh, defrocked, and he needed an accomplice to escape uh, this uh, prison. And Balbi, who was overweight and sedentary, uh, was rather reluctant, but the Casanova was very persuasive. And eventually, they escaped one night, um, and uh, when when they knew the guards would be sleeping. Um, and uh, managed to get over to the nearest canal and jump into a waiting gondola, and they got the heck out of Venice. Um, they kept going till they got to Germany. Now, Father Balbi um, was happy to kind of be recaptured and kind of went back to his old ways, but uh, Casanova just kept on going. Now, how do we know all this? Well, some of it people knew about, but he also wrote a book which was well-known in his lifetime called... Um, my flight, my escape, and he gives a kind of minute-by-minute, minute, very suspenseful account of how he managed to get out of the Venetian jail and the details of his escape. And until that time, he was the only person to escape Ipiombi, the lens, which was quite remarkable. 
so with this gift that he'd given himself of freedom, I think Casanova had a uh, gave him a keener appreciation of life than um, he would have had otherwise. One could say before he was jailed, he was rather jaded and spoiled and decadent. Afterward, you could say that he was much more eager, much more appreciative of life, more proactive, to use a jarringly modern word. And uh, so this was part of the the legend of uh, Casanova was this uh, fantastic escape he had made, uh, you know, from from Ipiombi. Um, later on, he occasionally was jailed for something, but there was no jail that ever phased him uh, like this one, and he, you know, easily talked his way out of the other ones. And from what I know, the state of Italy so far confirms his viewpoint that his account was sort of accurate for the most part. Is that right? Yeah, I kept looking for places that were really wrong, but I don't think anybody's found portions that were fabricated or, you know, plagiarized uh, or, or anything like that. So he, he he wrote a fairly accurate account, and uh, I think you could, dis- you know, dispute his opinions, of course, um, and, and some of the nuances. But, you know, if he said that he was in Prague in a given year or Paris or something, he was there. And, uh, you know, it was fairly easy to prove with one record or another or his, the trail of publications that he left behind, like like little breadcrumbs. You know, he, was, he always sought the limelight, but, you know, he didn't really ever find it until, until, until posthumously. So before I close this interview, I'd like to know what you have for men who might want to become like Casanova, not necessarily his, like, like body count, but, or, but, you know, like, to become more like his positive side, you know? Well, the positive side. Oh, well, I think most importantly is to really, you know, I think I just mentioned the fact that he was keenly appreciative of life and people and the pleasures of life and of the intellect um, as well as sensual pleasures um, and not taking anything for granted because you never know what's coming. Uh, that's one thing. Also, I think his appreciation of, of women as a kind of universe uh, unto themselves in which man, you know, uh, uh, um, guys, men are almost uh, uh, kind of a visitor, uh, was really, really remarkable. You know, he, you could say Casanova really loved women in the sense that he really appreciated women and what they offered that was distinctly feminine. So the power of the feminine mystique was for him overwhelming. Now, I have to put an asterisk there because when he was younger, he was, you know, as I said, in a Me Too sense, very exploitative of women and, uh, you know, was, was not somebody you'd want to date your daughter. Um, let's put it that way. So, uh, but he, he gradually attained this kind of, um, I don't know what you, enlightenment, I think would be the right word, um, through his experiences and through his, intemper- his temperament. So I think that's why we should remember him, and I think that's what he has to offer. Uh, also, his, his oppositional quality to read about it, to, to experience even vicariously as you read about it, um, you know, is, is liberating in the sense it's, it's refreshing, it's, it's bracing. You know, here's somebody who doesn't put up with all the cant and all the falderall and stuff and uh, challenges everything, and, and that can be very refreshing. And, of course, there's this contradiction because here he is throughout this, you know, being a monarchist, um, seeing full well the decadence of, uh, and inequality of monarchy all around him. 
nevertheless, it's uh, what he clings to. So, um, anyway, he's, you know, I think he's one of the most fascinating people he ever lived. I think there are other people who feel that way as well. And, um, you know, that's why I, I was uh, so drawn to this figure. And you mentioned that the Age of Enlightenment was sort of an enlightenment of feelings, whereas we kind of assume that the Romantic period, which came around the 19th century, was yeah. the era of feelings. Why do you think that's yeah. the case? Yeah, I, I, I think that's true, because the Enlightenment for Europeans really meant um, an, alo- an emotional liberation as well. Um, and that meant specifically from the hypocrisy of religious teachings and... Uh, you know, liberation from the co- the confines of monogamy. Now, I'm I'm not speaking personally. I'm talking about uh, Casanova and uh, other libertines who were opposed to all this as being you know outmoded, unhealthy, uh, and unjust, and and things like that. Um, so that was you know Casanova had a distinct way of looking at the univ- at the universe, and even the Romantic period, you know. Um, I haven't thought about that. That's a good question. Compared to Casanova's uh, unabashed sensuality, uh, the Romantic period seems a little decorous and uh, even old-fashioned in comparison. I would agree, because a lot of the Romantics idolize the medievals to some degree. Now, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been a wonderful time to talk together about a fascinating figure and a fascinating time period. Well, thanks for the interest in the book. It was great talking with you. You too. So until next time, this has been The Letter of Liberty, where we have discussed literature, liberty, politics, history, and potentially all that is under the sun. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit wcwp.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.